Thanks, John. Good morning, Woodland Hills. Good to see all of you, and welcome to those who are podcasting and watching by some other means. Uh, we used to refer to this weekend, uh, which uh, tends to be the, the lowest attended weekend of the year for churches in Minnesota all, all around, but we used to refer to this as the, the poor people's service because all the rich folks are at their cabins. But uh, we get extra righteousness points for being here, right? Haha. <laughs> so just kidding. We bless you guys with cabins. Invite us next time. All right. You'll see my shirt here, those of you who are watching, it says, are you present? Someone in the congregation gave me this, and this is because God always is. And that's just a reminder to stay awake, stay awake. The most important part of your environment at any given second is that God is there. And uh, it's important for us to stay awake to God's presence. And so as you're listening to this message, I encourage you just to be aware that God is here. God is present right here, pressing in on us. And uh, stay, stay awake to his presence. We are officially done with this series we had going on for six weeks, Scandalous Love, it was called, talking about the scandalous love of God. And it was powerful. I, I, I think God hit people in some uh, new ways. I was uh, hit in some, some, some unique ways. It, was, uh, it seemed like there was an anointing on that series. And, and I really don't feel like we're supposed to let it go just yet. I don't know how long we're going to hang on to it. Uh, but I know there will be at least two more weeks uh, that will be uh, kind of savoring this, this topic. As we were going through this, this series, uh, I got a new take on the story that we usually title The Prodigal Son. And I'd, I'd like to talk about that. It is, I think if we understand it rightly, one of the most, if not the most beautiful stories in the Bible. And um, if you get on the inside of this one, or rather let this on the inside of you, it has the power to just turn everything upside down. This message, someone mentioned after the last service, that I mean, they, they, it, just, it just overwhelmed them as they got in on this. They said, why did you reserve this for you know, a weekend that you knew would be, uh, have low attendance? You should have saved this for a bigger crowd. It, see, we don't, we don't adjust things that way. I, you know, we, we're not going like, to start tailoring this. But, but th- th- this is a, a passage that has just got so much power in it. We call it the story of the prodigal son, but I want to title this message The Prodigal God. Actually, I'm shamelessly plagiarizing the title of Tim Keller's book called The Prodigal God. I encourage you to read that book. It's one of the ones that helped me get a, a new angle and some things I hadn't quite seen before on this passage. Because the word prodigal means uh, extravagant, reckless, or having spent all. It can be used positively or negatively. And in the tradition, we've always referred to the prodigal son because we, we emphasize how he wasted all of his wealth. But we're going to see that that is not the main point of this story. In fact, in fact, we'll see next week that he's not even the most important of the two sons. There's two sons in the story. The, 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 the tension really is on the elder son who stayed. Come back next week. We'll talk about that. But what this really is about, what this really is about is the story of this extravagant, reckless God. A God whose generosity and love and compassion knows nothing of common sense, uh, is reckless. And um, I I talked on this parable uh, a year and a half ago, I guess, as we were going through the book of Luke. And we will be getting back to the book of Luke one of these days, I assure you. But... um, in the light of just this series we've gone through and some new things I've read, I wanted to come back to this. The main thing I want us to see or get this morning is, is, is not just to, to rehear the story, though that's important, but to experience it, 
to experience it. In fact, those who are listening through podcasts or some other means of, you know, sometimes people are out jogging or doing some things uh, as they're listening to the message. And a lot of times that's fine because it's about information. But this is one where I would encourage you to, to set it aside, sit down and enter into this. And, and, and apply all of your attention, all of your imagination, all of your consciousness to this message here in the next 35 minutes. Uh, all the ideas in our minds, the concepts that we have, they have power to impact us to the degree that we see them concretely, to the degree that they're not abstract, to the degree that we can see them and hear them vividly. That's true of all of our ideas. And so as I go through this message, I want to encourage you to, as vividly as possible, envision, represent, see, hear, and sense yourself as this younger son. Because the point of the story is, it's not just a nice story that happened once upon a time. This is the story, the true story about all of us and our God. And so we're supposed to identify strongly with this younger son. So I encourage you to enter into this, as St. Ignatius of Loyola says, using all five senses with your imagination. And uh, this sermon will be sort of a sustained meditation on the scripture as I lead us through this. I will at times recall, call us back to, to imagine this. And I, wanna, I, I will at times be praying, Father, our Holy Spirit, help us to enter into this and, and, and vividly imagine ourselves as this younger son. So I want us to experience this in order to experience the transforming power of this beautiful, beautiful story. Paul says, we've seen this in this series that we've been through, Scandalous Love, that only God can reveal God. That's why he prays, and we sang earlier, that God would open the eyes of our heart. That we may know with all the saints what is the height and the depth and the width and the, the, the breadth of, of the love of God that passes all knowledge. Only God can do that. That's how you know you're listening to the true gospels because it's unbelievable unless God supernaturally anoints it. If you're ever hearing a version of the gospel that kind of makes sense to you in terms of God's love and how God acts, I can assure you that that's not the right version. Because the real version is too good to be true unless God is anointing you and empowering you to believe it. And so I want to pray, Lord, help us to believe, help us to receive, give us eyes to see, a heart to receive. Father, right now take these words, they're only words, useless words, unless, unless you are impregnating them with your authority and inspiration. So Father, take them and use them to invade our life, perhaps in areas that have been locked up for a long time. Address wounds that have maybe been scabbed over for a very, very long time. Go into nooks and crannies of our heart, dark places, and invade us with your love and change us. Lord, help us to be courageous enough to feel, to allow ourselves to feel, and set us free in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. We're in Luke 15. And Jesus has just told the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. And now he's going to tell the parable of two lost sons. There's two sons here. We're going to be focusing on one of these sons. So it's the first part of this parable. It starts in verse 11 of Luke 15. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. Already you realize this story is about the man. The man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father... Give me my share of the estate. And so the father divided his property, his property, 
between them, between the two sons. Holy Spirit, help us to vividly imagine ourselves as the son. The fact that the uh, property of this man is referred to as an estate tells you already that he was a wealthy landowner. It was an estate. This is a large area. The son's attitude towards his father, this younger son, his attitude towards his father is absolutely repulsive. It's revolting. It's despicable. It was considered really grossly indecent to even talk about an inheritance before the father was actually buried. It was rude, to say the least. And here this son is not only talking about his inheritance, but he's demanding it. And what he's in effect saying is, Father, I can't wait for you to die. I want my fair share now. I wish you were dead, but you're not. So give me my fair share now. It was, in, it was incredibly insulting. What's ironic is that what he's asking for in terms of his fair share is not fair at all by first century standards. The younger son, if he got anything, he never got nearly as much as the older brother. The older brother was, uh, according to the tradition, given two-thirds of all the property. In fact, that's, that, 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 that's taught in Deuteronomy chapter 21. That's an Old Testament verse. The, the, the elder is supposed to get at least two-thirds of the property, and if the father wanted to, he could give him the whole thing. So this younger son didn't deserve half. He didn't really even deserve a, a third. He's at the good graces of, of the father and the elder brother, and yet here he has the gall to come up and says, I demand my fair share. Apparently the father had told him that he would give him half of the estate, and that's what he wants. So the father divides it up between the two. In doing that, the father is operating with, 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 with really outrageous generosity. In fact, it was frowned upon in this culture, because of that Old Testament verse, for the father to be overly generous to the, to the younger uh, son. He could have been accused of being unbiblical. So he's already acting with, with a scandalous generosity, to a kid who just said, I wish you were dead. And remember, this isn't some trust fund, some inheritance trust fund that the kids are going to inherit. This is the father's property. That's what it says in the text. This is what the kids will inherit. It's this estate. And so now the father has to sell off half of his estate to give it to this kid who wants him dead. And remember, in ancient cultures, your status in the culture, your respect and your authority is directly tied to your wealth and your possession and your land. So in doing this, the father has just demoted himself significantly in the culture. And, uh, and the fact that it was a son who's treating him this way would have been humiliating. In fact, the whole village here, very likely, if this was a typical estate, would have, been, would have taken this very, very personally. We're not told why the son would have been so cruel towards his father. Why did he hate his father so much? Maybe he just wanted to be free. Maybe he wanted to sow his wild oats. Maybe he thought he, he uh, could do it better, make more money if he could invest it in different ways. We're not told. But what he does is he breaks his father's heart. And, and, and we need to vividly see that we are, we are that, that younger son. And we break our father's heart when we go off on our own. And we do that every time we sin. Every sin we commit is a way of saying, God, I'm going to act as though you didn't exist as though I had rights over my own life, as though I was my own Lord, as though you were my creator. And we break the Father's heart. And so imagine yourself as a son coming to your father and saying, I wish you were dead. Give me what is mine. But the Father lets him. He's given you that freedom. And then in verse 13 it says, Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and set off for a distant country 
and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Holy Spirit, help us to see that we are this son. It would take some time to sell off the property. That's a, it takes some arranging. And then, and then you collect all that is yours, and it would have been a, 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 a lot of wealth. Half of everything now is yours. And so you collect it all together, and you head off to a distant country. And so envision yourself doing that. But you need to envision yourself not with a little backpack and riding on a horse. You've got a caravan. You would have had some servants of your own now, and, and, and it would have taken a couple wagons just to carry all of your possessions, and you got a whole lot of money, and now you're heading off. You in this caravan. And you don't look back and wave or anything. And undoubtedly, this would have been terribly awkward going through all this. Your father and your elder brother there. So you don't look back, and you're heading out now with all this wealth into a distant country. And no doubt you feel, don't you feel, feel like, whoa, I'm free at last. No longer under the the thumb of my father. I can spend my money the way I want to, do my own thing, be my own person. And so you go off into this distant country, and, and you are, for a time, the life of the town. You've got all the money. It feels to you like it's unlimited resources. You just spend and spend and spend. You're the one who always buys rounds for the house. So you're everyone's best friend. Anyone needs a loan, they come to you. Needs a favor, they come to you. And you've just got this unlimited resource, so you've got a lot of friends, and you can buy all the friends and all the pleasure and all the sex and all the whatever you want. It's great for a while. For a while, you feel like, man, you, this is the smartest thing you've ever done. What, t- wait, what took so long? Huh? You, know, you should have done this sooner. You think the money will never end, but you're wrong. And so it says in verse 14, after he had spent everything, it does run out, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Holy Spirit, help us to see that this is exactly our condition apart from Jesus Christ. The good times come to an abrupt end. The money runs out, and then a famine, a severe famine, it says, hits the land. Severe famine in the ancient world, that's not an inconvenience. That's death. No no crop, no eat. People die. A severe famine hits, and you've now got no money. And so those friends of yours, so-called friends, all of a sudden they're gone. Everyone's scattered to the winds. All, all those promises that were made, you know, when you were buying rounds on the house, everyone was saying, oh, you'll be my friend forever. We're going to grow old together. I'll love you forever. And now it's gone. This is gone. Dust in the wind. And your money's gone. And you find yourself now completely alone. You go looking for work, and there's not much work available. Everyone's going to be hurting because of this famine. But you finally find something on a farm a job on a farm, but is doing something that really no decent person wants to do, certainly no decent Jewish person, you're tending the pigs. And the pigs, you as a Jewish person know, from the law in the Old Testament, the pigs are, are vile creatures. They're disgusting, dirty, unclean creatures. You're not supposed to eat them. You're not even supposed to touch them. You don't want to be around them. If possible, you don't want to look at them. But now as a pig farmer, you've got to always be with them, taking care of them. It is probably among the worst jobs that a first century Jewish person could ever imagine. It's enough to make a decent Jewish person gag, the thought of taking care of pigs. And this, remember, this isn't a modern, free-range, nice, clean farm we're talking about. This is a first century pig farm. 
And, and the way that you would take care of pigs is the way shepherds took care of the sheep. You lived with them. You had to protect them, feed them, shepherd them, and all of that. You're with them 24-7. And there's no FDA cleanliness codes to, take, to, to adhere to. You're 24-7 with them, and there's going to be mud, and, and you're up to your ankles in the mud and the manure. In this 100-degree heat, it would mean that you're spending a whole lot of time in this famine, sun-scorching, 100-degree Middle Eastern heat. Up to your ankles in, in mud and in pig manure, the stench alone sometimes makes you think you're going to pass out. It's disgusting. You're disgusted by it. See that. Imagine that. Enter into that. And you can't even bathe at night. I mean, it's not like they would give you uh, shower facilities. Your showers are, 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 are when it rains. And unfortunately, you're in the middle of a severe famine, so you go day after day without ever getting a chance to wash the stench of pig manure off of you. Your, 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 your skin gets caked with the mud and the manure. It's on you. You go to sleep with it. You wake up with it. It's always around you and on you. You sleep with it day after day, week after week, month after month. So you're dirty, you're smelly, you're disgusted, but most of all, you're hungry. This farmer knows he's got all the leverage here because it's a famine. And you'll take whatever you can get. So you're at a starvation's wage and he's probably charging you for some rent. So you're starving to death. To the point where the, the pig food becomes attractive to you. These pods were pods from the carob tree. It's what they typically fed pigs. We know cases where people in severe starvation would eat this, but it's got very little nutritional value. It doesn't sit well with the human intestinal system. But what it does do is, is it fills you up. It, for a moment, takes away the hunger pains. And this guy is so hungry, he just wants to do that. Trouble is, is if, if he gets caught stealing the pig food to eat for himself, he could get fired. So he's hoping that somebody will just give him some, but they won't even give him that. It's a little bit like, this food would be a little bit like what these poor Haitian mothers sometimes do in, in Haiti, where, where they, they, if they can get their hands on a little bit of flour, they'll mix it with street mud and, and cook it in the, in the sun and give it to their kid, kids. Mud cakes, they call them. And, and, and it has next to no nutritional value and even upsets the intestinal system, of course, but, but it has the one value of taking away, for a moment at least, the hunger pains that their children are racked by. This guy is in this desperate of a situation. Imagine yourself, you are the son, you are the son. This is where, our, whether we know it or not, this is the desperate situation that our rebellion, individually and collectively, has put us. Ankle deep in pig manure. And then it says, moving on, when he came to his senses, the son said, how many, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I have a plan. I'll set out and go back to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. He's got a speech ready. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I got that. But make me like one of your hired servants. Holy Spirit, help us to enter into this and see this. We are the son. So here you are on this pig farm in the mud of manure and, and in your desperation, sometimes you dream about home. You try not to because it's so painful to think what you squandered away, the, the daydreams about what it was like back on the farm. But eventually these daydreams force themselves on you as you're tending these pigs. And one of, one of them is, you remember, you remember about the hired servants that your father used to feed. Now hired servants are not 
are not household servants. An estate like this would have had a number of household servants. These were servants who lived on the estate. They were, in some cases, considered kind of like secondary family. Hired servants were an entirely different category. These were the folks that you bought for a day. These are the folks who couldn't find regular employment, and so they'd go down to the marketplace in the morning, five in the morning, hope that some wealthy landowner would come or send his servants down to get some labor for the day. And usually these were jobs that no one else wanted to do. They were jobs that were even beneath the household servants, uh, menial tasks, or maybe they just needed extra work picking crop or whatever. But they'd send the servants down and they'd pick out the five or ten uh, healthiest looking of these servants, offer them whatever the going rate would be, and they'd have them for 12 to 16 hours of work. That's how you did it. And uh, food wasn't a part of the deal usually. You're on your own for food, but we'll pay you this amount of money to work for us for a day. A lot of these folks were the homeless folks who couldn't find any other kind of work. And as you're working in this pig field and the mud and the manure, you think back on how, and you're hungry, you remember how your father used to feed these hired hands. After a couple hours' work, he'd throw a party. Your father, who's so foolishly generous, would bring out all this food and, and feed these quote-unquote lowlifes. No one else would ever do that. But he'd throw, and they'd have food left over. It wasn't just a, a little sandwich. They ate as much as they wanted to eat, and there was still food left over. Maybe he even sent them home with that extra food. He was so outrageously generous that way. And here you are, you were his son, and now you're starving to death. What's wrong with this picture? And it's not just about the food either. It's, you know, in the ancient world, eating at the table with somebody was a form of fellowship, a way of saying, you're my company, you're my people. And here, his father, even though he was this dignitary, a, a, a man of social standing, he wasn't ashamed to sit down and eat with these hired servants, this festival. And it's, that, that memory contrasts so starkly with where you're at right now. The generosity of your father just giving, lavishing all this extra food, this festival on these hired servants. And now you can't even give, get anyone who will give you pig food. And the, the laughter and the fellowship they would have on those afternoons as they took that siesta break from work, how it contrasts with the cheap friends that you bought. Oh, they laughed all right, but it was just because you were paying them to laugh. Now you realize that you're all alone. What you'd give to go back and be just one of these hired hands. And then you hit upon an idea. It's a desperate idea, but you are in a desperate situation. You know, you assume at least that you've been disowned by the family. You've been disowned by the whole village. They, your name is, is going to be, you know, mud. Uh, no one's going to want anything to do with you. So you assume that. But you think maybe. And this will require you swallowing every last piece of dignity that you have. But maybe if you go back on your knees... And, and you have a speech ready. And you say, Father, I know that I've sinned against you and against heaven, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I got that. I won't even ask to be a household servant. But when you send your servants into the, the town to get the hired hands, would you tell them to keep an eye out for me, because I'm going to be down there, and I could really use a little help. For old times' sake, I, I, I could use a meal. He's, he's thinking about getting a meal, the meal that the hired hands got. So he's preparing his speech. And then it says in verse 20, he got up and he went to his, his father. But it says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. 
Holy Spirit, help us to vividly imagine and see the truth that we are this Son and our God is this Father. Open our eyes of our heart to see the height and the depth and the width and the length of the love of God that passes all knowledge. The Father sees us while we're still a long way off, which means, of course, the Father's been looking for us. Every day that we've been gone, he's been looking out at that horizon, on and off throughout the day, with these longing eyes and this aching heart, wanting you to return home, hoping that maybe today will be the day that he'll see you on that horizon. He's been looking for you. And while you're still a long way off, he sees you. Not because he can recognize your facial features, because you're too far away, but he sees the silhouette in the horizon. And, and this is a father who's looked at you affectionately all of your life, so he knows you. He, he, he's so intimate in his awareness of how you walk and how you hold yourself. And there's something about the way you slouch or the way you shuffle or the, the gait of your step. He recognizes that it's you far off on the horizon. And when he sees you, his heart erupts. But it doesn't erupt with anger or rage. This heart erupts with affection and compassion and empathy. This father could have at that moment recalled that you just a while ago wanted him dead. This father could recall that you went off with half of his estate. And now he's looking at you and you don't even have shoes on. What happened to the caravan? What happened to the servants and the camels and all the wealth that you had? Did you blow half of my wealth that I worked hard on and I inherited part of that from my father? And He could have been enraged. Most fathers would have been. But not this father. Instead, his heart breaks for you. Holy Spirit, help us to see this. He, he enters into our pain and our shame and our humiliation. Even though we brought it on ourselves, we have no one to blame but ourselves. We do make the decisions that we make and we have to own that. But in our shame, he doesn't come at us from an accusatory point of view. He enters into it. His heart breaks for us in our situation, though it was our own doing. And I want you to now see yourself. Holy Spirit, help us to see, see yourself. You're walking down this road. You've been walking for a long time. You're practicing your lines. You're barefoot on this rocky road. You're, 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 you're just caked with, with manure and mud. You're dying of thirst. You're dying of hunger. It's the scorching hot famine sun. But you're rehearsing your lines because you're hoping that if everything works out, if this, if this speech is good enough, by tomorrow you could have a meal. Maybe he'll hire you tomorrow. So you're practicing your lines. You're a couple miles away from home. And then all of a sudden you hear, you hear an elderly man screaming. Can you see it? And so you look up and you see this, off in the distance, this man, this older man, running like an idiot, fool. He's screaming. Maybe your first thought is, there's a lunatic loose. He's running towards you, but he's got this robe, the robe of a dignitary, and he's holding it up like, you know, like a skirt because he has to to run. He's running down, screaming something, and you're baffled. What, what, what's going on here? It almost looks like your father, but it couldn't possibly be your father because your father is this dignitary. Granted, he's lost half his estate, but he's still very, very wealthy and high in social standing, and dignitaries in the first century never run. Slaves run when they're ordered, and children run for play, but adults, even common adults, and certainly dignified adults, they don't run. That's a sign of, of, of being a lowlife. And here he is running. He's lost his dignity. So it can't be your father. Surely can't be your father. And then all of a sudden, as he gets closer, it becomes undeniable that this is, in fact, your father. 
And you're puzzled. What is he running for? What is he coming? Maybe he's really, really angry. Now, now he's going to take it out on me. But the screams, this high, shrill scream doesn't sound angry. In fact, it almost sounds joyful. And so you're very, very puzzled. You're baffled. Enter into that. Like, what is he doing here? Because you assume you've been disowned. You assume that the old elder brother in half the village wants to kill you. And your bewilderment only increases when now this father runs up full steam, almost knocks you over, and he gives you this hug. Now, the, the hug isn't a nice little welcoming pat, you know, a welcoming little pat on the back like we do. In the Greek here, it says he fell on his neck. So you've got a picture of the father coming, and he puts his arms around the neck and then puts all his weight on the neck as he, he's burying, he's like, he's leaning on him and burying his face into the, into the chest of his son. It's like he's exasperated. He's exhausted with joy. And he's holding on like this, and his face is buried in the younger son's chest. The part where, imagine yourself, where do you put your hands now? Do you like tap him on the back? or what? And you have no idea what he's doing. But he's there hugging you. And then, and then even more strangely, he starts to kiss you. But this isn't a nice little greeting kiss, like kind of thing. Now, the word for a regular kiss in Greek is phileo. It means a regular kiss, a little peck on the cheek. The word that's used in this narrative, in this parable, is katafileo, which means you kiss intensely, you kiss earnestly. You, you kiss with intense affection. The father starts smothering him. Holy Spirit, help us to see that we are the son, and this is our God. The father starts smothering him in kisses, just kissing him all over, hard. And I can imagine me in this situation all of a sudden being worried about I look like death. I smell like death. I reek to high heaven with the sweat and the manure. And he's kissing me all over. That means he, he, he can taste this. And with the tears, it's getting mixed with the mud and manure. And so when he kisses, it gets on his lips. My stench is in his mouth. And nothing could possibly be more revolting to a, a decent Jewish man than to have the taste of pig poop in his mouth. But this father doesn't even notice that. It stuns you. You're shocked. He just keeps, with, with, his, with the mud and manure on his lips, he just keeps on kissing you all over. What is he doing? He's, he's out of his mind. We are the son, and this is our father. This is our God. Finally, there's a little bit of a pause in the action, and so it's time for you to make your pitch. So you push away a little bit and clear your throat. The son said to him, Father... You're acting very strange, but I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son, but if... And yet the father won't let you go on. The father said to his servants, he just completely ignores them, quick, bring the best robe, the best robe, and put it on him, quick, and put a ring, a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they right then and there began to celebrate. Help, Holy Spirit, help us to imagine vividly that we are this son and this is our father, God our father. Before you can even make your pitch to be a hired hand, your father interrupts you. In fact, in his interruption, it's clear that he hasn't heard a word that you said. He doesn't care. He clearly has no interest in negotiating with you, in bargaining with you. And, and, and having some kind of payback plan. All the stuff that you had in your head, he, he just completely ignores it. Instead, he uses his formidable authority to now command his servants 
to run quickly to the house and bring to, back to him the best robe. Now, the best robe is the father's robe. It's the robe of his dignity, the robe of his royalty. This is the robe that he wears to all the important festive occasions. And, and, and you're wondering, why would he order the best robe to be brought here? Uh, what's going on there? Why would he want that for you? And what, what's the hurry? Why not just wait till we get to the house if you want to give him the robe? What's the hurry? And then finally some light begins to break through in all of your bewilderment and confusion. It begins to dawn on you what maybe is going on here. Hey, your father, this, this, this father crazy in love father, that he wants, he wants the robe because he wants it now so that he wants to hide your shame. He wants to... He doesn't want you to take another step, not another step as a pig farmer. He wants to take the robe, the family robe, the robe of royalty, the robe of his dignity, and put it around you to cover up the pig filth and the mud and the manure. So that when people now look, even, even as he's walking back to the house, as you pass other houses, maybe you have to walk through the village, people will know that it's all suddenly occurring to you that they'll know that you are in fact his son. Still, still, after all this, you're wearing the robe of royalty. He's, he's covered your sin and shame with his glory and robed you in his righteousness. And then, then he brings this ring. And the ring isn't just a piece of jewelry. The ring, the ring is, is the family ring. It's the, the ring that's got the family signature on it, this emblem on it. It's the ring that you use when you purchase something, when it's family. It's the father's authority and the father's wealth. And by imprinting that in wax and putting on a seal, you make a deal. It's like a credit card of sorts in the first century. And the father now is saying, I want to give you my authority. You just squandered half of his estate. And yet without any questions asked, without any payment plan, Without any, we'll check, we'll, let's check in on this in six months to see how it's going. Up front, he gives you the family robe and now the family ring with all the authority and the privileges that come with that. And then, of course, he puts sandals on your feet because only children and slaves go barefoot. And you're no slave. You're his son. And he welcomes you back as a son in full standing, as though nothing had ever happened. You are, Holy Spirit, help us to see this. Imagine yourself vividly. You are the son, now robed in this family robe and having this ring and having these sandals. And then you hear the father say, and kill the fatted calf. That was the most expensive meat in the ancient world. You only did this for the most important of occasions, which means your father, despite everything, Right now, you're the most important person in his life. And he wants to throw the party of all parties for you, for you. The entire village is invited. Word spreads quickly as you're walking back to this house. The music begins. They start celebrating immediately. There's not a minute to waste. He says, start celebrating now. And see this, hear this, enter into this. Associate with this as you walk up to the house. The music is playing. The barbecue has started. The village is gathering around. You're walking up and you've got this robe that's covering. You know, maybe part of you is wondering, like, I'm going to get this robe all dirty with all my stench. But the father doesn't care. And, and as you're walking up with this robe and the ring and the sandals and the party's starting, your father starts to get carried away again. That old, that old guy, he just doesn't, 
he just loses his dignity and he starts singing and he starts dancing. You can picture him holding up that royal skirt again. And, and he's just giddy. He's giddy with love. You're beside yourself as you're looking at this. And begins to announce to the people who are gathered here, we've got to celebrate because this is my son. You notice again that he calls you son. <laughs> you were hoping to get a meal as a hired hand and now he's calling you son. This son of mine, he was lost, but now he's found. He was dead, but now he's alive. And what happened in the past does not matter. Now he wears the robe, he wears the ring, he's got the sandals, he's the son of mine, and so we must celebrate. And you think to yourself, you're home, you're home, as though you had never, ever left. On the authority of Jesus Christ, I tell you that this is our true situation. This is the truth about us, and this is the truth about our God. God is like this. If God is not like this, then Jesus Christ is lying, and Jesus Christ does not lie. And so close your eyes for a moment. Can you hear, enter into this truth with all five senses? Holy Spirit, open the eyes of our heart. As vividly as possible, can you see your Father, however you represent that? But remember, Jesus is the face of the Father. He looks like Jesus Christ. Can you see him throwing this party for you? It's just for you. In front of the whole village, the whole cosmos, all the angelic beings, he announces that you are his child. You still have the pig filth. You still smell. The mud is still caked on your skin. You're gaunt. You haven't eaten for so long. You've been in the sun for so long. You're not much to look at. Maybe that's where you're at right now. But you've got the robe, and you've got the ring, and you've got the sandals, and you've got the Father calling you son. And Zephaniah 3.17 says he sings over you. He dances over you. He claps his hands in joy over you. Can you see him doing that? Why? Just because you're his son, and you're here. Despite the smell and the filth and all that's been done and all that you've squandered, his heart is so full of joy. See it. And then can you very vividly imagine him hugging you and kissing you as he did? Not a polite hug. No, he's squishing you. He's burying his face in joy into your chest. Can you see that? And then he starts smothering you with kisses. See it. Kissing you all over. See the mud and the manure on his, on his moist lips. But he doesn't seem to mind at all. As he's crying for joy of the fact that he gets to hug you. Our God is like this. This is the true us, and this is the true God. And can you see him then singing and dancing over you? And then he comes back to you one last time in this exercise. And he looks deeply into your eyes. Holy Spirit, help us to see this. He looks deeply into your eyes, holds that dirty face of yours in, in his hands so tenderly and gently, and nose to nose, with those eyes of love. You can see the love in the eyes. He says, you're my child. You're my child. I've loved you with an everlasting love. Everlasting means it does not waver and it does not end. Hear him say to you, nothing will ever change that. I don't care what you smell like. I don't care what you taste like. You're my son. 
And out of my love, we'll get you a shower, we'll get you a bath. What you need to know is that even before the bath and before the shower, you're my son. Nothing's going to change that. You're my daughter, and nothing's going to change that. Hear him say it with your name on it. I love you with an everlasting love. And by the way, you can forget right now any thought of paying me back. It's covered. Welcome home. Hear him say welcome home. As long as the Holy Spirit is helping you see and experience this, I want to encourage you just to sit silently. If you want to come forward and pray with our prayer team, they'll be up here about any need whatsoever. And when you feel like you want to leave, I encourage you to do it very, very quietly. Take all the conversations out in the gathering area. For, out of respect for those who just want to sit, all growth, all growth comes out of this vision right here as we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, we're transformed from one degree of glory to another. Let him love you. Just let him, just enjoy him enjoying you. That is the shower that we need. Thank you, Father.